Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Good morning from me, Richard Heller, in a cold, grey and windy south-east London. Apologies from uh, Peter Oborn, who's unavoidably absent, but very grateful to welcome um, our friend Roger Alton as uh, most capable substitute. That's Roger here. Thank you very much. Also in South East London, much like that, though there is the uh, England-Australia match to look forward to later. There is to look forward to later. It's also um, on the day we record, it's Courtney Walsh's birthday. Happy birthday to him. Happy 59th birthday to him. Uh, appropriate to, um, in a way, to be celebrating birthday of a great West Indian bowler because we've got a West Indian theme this week as our subject. Um, we're welcoming as our guest Dr. David Woodhouse, who's um, a cricket historian who's written a really remarkable book about one of the most, well, remarkable tours in cricket history. It had everything, as we're going to hear, sort of on and off the field. Uh, it set the scene for many modern developments. And to tell us all about it, we welcome Dr. David Woodhouse. Well, thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you for sustaining us through lockdown and beyond. I'm a great fan of the podcast. Well, you're um, sustaining it even further, David, by being with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself first. Um, I think you gained your PhD thesis, didn't you, on Byron? Uh, so I'm sure you have all of Byron's cricket achievements at your fingertips. Yeah, yes, I have an academic background. Um, my late father, Frank, was an academic, and I, I did a thesis on Byron, as you say. And for those of us who love his writing, that caricature of mad, bad and dangerous to know is very tiresome. You know, mm. as a poet, he's in fact sage, moral and wonderful to read, I think. But uh, it sounds like you know about his cricket prowess. He appeared in the first recorded Eton against Harrow match, playing for Harrow in 1805 at the original Lord's Ground on Dorset Square. And it's corny, but it's true. He was number seven in the batting order in a, in a quite low-scoring game, and the number six was called Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> How many did he get? From memory, he got... It was a low-scoring game, as I say. I think no team got 100 in any of the four innings, but he scored seven and two from memory, mm. and he took a wicket. And I believe they then went... In a long Eaton versus Harry tradition, they went then went and smashed up some bar in London or some club in London. <laughs> what a great fact. I didn't know that. <laughs> and what about um, your own cricketing past, David? Um, are you now or have you ever been a cricketer, as I used to say? Well, yes, I, I'm from a cricket-loving family in the, in the West Midlands. Uh, I suppose you might say I'm the product of an interracial marriage in the sense that my mum is a Villa fan and my dad supported West Brom. Okay. Uh, but in cricket, we're all staunch Worcestershire supporters. Um, I believe my paternal grandfather played occasionally for Old Hill in the Birmingham League. Um, but my dad got a job at the University in Hull, so I learned all my cricket in Yorkshire. Um, I made the Humberside Colts side, but I knew I wasn't quite good enough, I think, to, to make the grade. And for the last 20 years, I've been opening the batting for a nomadic club called the Gardeners. They're a great and eclectic bunch of people. And, you know, I still enjoy the game. And, of course, you, you never stop learning as a cricketer. Well, the Gardeners, it sounds like a fixture for um, other... Peter's team or mine, which uh, we play, but and I both play for a lot of nomadic teams. Yes. Um, well, we'd love to give you a game sometime. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll fix that. Not now on the podcast, um, because we must go on to, the, to your book, David, which is a detailed account of an immensely controversial uh, English cricket tour, the cricket tour of the West Indies in 1953-1954. 
But it's a book that says much more than about cricket. It puts the tour in the context of England and West Indies at the time. And I think it's a really a major work of political and economic and social and even cultural history, too. Before we go into all those big themes, perhaps we'd better remind ourselves and listeners very briefly about um, what happened on and off the field in that tour. Yes, um, we can perhaps there's so many things happened. It's, it's hard to give a whistle-stop journey through it because so many things happened. And um, I don't want to give away the result for people who want to read the book because it was a sort of roller coaster of a series on the field. But even before it started, it was, it was hyped up as the unofficial world championship of cricket. If you remember, Hutton had just won the Ashes in coronation year. He, he led England to their first home victory in more than a quarter of a century. And back in 1950, West Indies had thrashed England. That's the year of cricket, lovely cricket at Lords, where I saw it. And they'd never been defeated on home soil. So for the first time, MCC sent a full-strength side to the Caribbean, rather than treating the West Indies as a development tour. I, I mean, I thought the sort of narrative of the, the series is so fascinating. David, what, how did, what happened in the first test and how was the sort of build-up to the first test going? It's such a thrilling story. Yes, well, they started off in Jamaica. And Hutton initially adopted what I think might be called a non-fraternisation policy. Um, Godfrey Evans remembered him saying, um, well, we've got to do these people, haven't we? We've got to do them. You mustn't speak to them on or off the field. Um, now, I think he was, in fact, paying homage to the Australian approach to, to touring. But it was open to misunderstanding in the Caribbean. Uh, Frank Worrell, uh, for one, was upset by England's condescending attitude. And the local crowds became incensed um, by the treatment of their veteran hero, George Headley. Headley had been brought back by popular subscription from Birmingham League cricket with Dudley. And so Headley got injured by Fred Truman, who bowled him a bouncer in a warm-up game. Then he was in inverted commas given a single in the test match, which happened to bring him to Truman's end. And then he was bowled by a thunderbolt from Tony Locke, who was soon afterwards no ball for throwing. Uh, the first time that had happened in a 20th century test. And that was only half the story. The, the Sabina Park crowd did not just vent its ire against the English. The family of one of the umpires was allegedly attacked after he had given a Jamaican batsman out LBW on 94. And when the captain, Geoffrey Stolmeyer, didn't enforce the follow-on, he was booed remorselessly for the rest of the game, uh, partly because he was white, I think, but also because he was from Trinidad. And Stolmeyer reportedly asked for a helicopter to be ready to whisk him away from danger a precaution which looked advisable uh, when England had reached 277 for two, chasing 457 to win. Can I ask one time thing about the no kind of fraternisation policy? Yes. Which strikes me as sort of so insane, and we know about the, yeah. the, is it the Aussies never talking to anybody. It's so dotty. I mean, and this is 70 years ago. Um, yes. I think Hutton was affected by his experience after the war, particularly. If you, Bradman never forgave him, I think, for breaking his world record, but also saw him as the, as the most important English batsman. Yeah. So the Australians indulged in what I think would now be called a decapitation strategy against Hutton. You know, they, they targeted his head, they targeted his arm, his, his sort of injured arm. And I think Hutton was affected by the fact he and Washbrook were sort of cold-shouldered by Lindwall and Miller to an extent. I mean, Lindwall and Miller, to be fair, were very sociable people normally. But I think he'd been so scarred by that and the West Indians had just lost to Australia that he felt if he, you know, adopted that kind of policy, it would have results. But as the tour went on, I think he realised that he made a mistake. Yeah, shocking. Terrible, very sad, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. But that, that first test, David, was really just a warm-up to the rest of the series because the, <laughs> there's, there's plenty more to follow, and, and it started to follow in the second test at Barbados, didn't it? Yes, well, in Barbados, I mean, Locke was no-balled again in the tour match against Barbados, and the umpire happened to be Clyde Walcott's uncle, Harold. Uh, so, of course, this only heightened the uh, English suspicions about biased umpiring, uh, and they felt that was confirmed in, in the test match itself when Compton got a bad decision. But the Barbadians who expected the English to play with freedom and, and behave with restraint were, were shocked by the tourist's conduct. Off the field, Tom Graveney was nearly sent home for swearing at a Royal Navy cocktail party. Uh, the wife of an MCC member was allegedly jostled by drunken players in a hotel lift. And on the field, England were hooted by the crowd and I think it's fair to say excoriated by their own press, for crawling to 128 runs and 114 overs. And that, at the time, was the slowest day in Test cricket. I'd just like to pick up that point about Clyde Walcott's uncle. It's slightly the equivalent today of, um, as it might be, Ben Stokes's uncle. Um, <laughs> isn't it, umpiring? Um, in I mean, in, in, fairness, um, <laughs> in fairness, Howard Walcott, the previous winter, had given Clyde out LBW on 96 against mm. India. So, so. Oh, very, a very fair minded man. <laughs> Tricky over Christmas lunch, have I? <laughs> yeah. Can I ask about the third test in British Guiana? Is it the test arena still British Guiana? No, well, I think it is actually a shame that England nowadays don't play. In those days, there was a reference to the big four colonies. So, Jamaica, Barbados, British Guiana, and Trinidad. The smaller islands actually were, there was a sort of prejudice against the smaller islands like Antigua and um, Grenada and so on, although MCC did visit them for the first time on this tour. And so, you know, in the old days, England would always play there, wouldn't they? Border, the ground that was in place then was the only ground, I th only test ground, I think, below sea level, isn't it? Yes. But nowadays, of course, England don't go there. I mean, that's a subject we might come on to mm. later. But in those days, British Guiana was definitely on the itinerary and that was the next game. And um, in the tour match there, Hutton made a formal complaint about what he thought was the worst umpiring he'd ever seen in first-class cricket. And the two umpires, the two black umpires in that tour match, were replaced by umpires of Indian and Chinese heritage for the test. And we might come back to the significance mm -hmm. of that. But many Guyanese were incensed in any case by allegations that um, the Yorkshireman Truman and Johnny Wardle had made racially aggravated remarks to one of the umpires in the tour game. And then during the test match, there was a full-scale riot. You know, the crowd hurled um, packing cases and bottles onto the pitch. I think it's fair to describe that as the first riot at a test match in the 20th century. What, what was the cause of the riot? Well, the spark that lit it was that the Guyanese wicketkeeper, Cliff McWatt, was in a partnership with John Holt. And they'd reached nine, they were trying to save the follow-on and they just got to 98. And um, what was run out by a very good throw from Peter May in the deep. So that's what sparked the riot off, you know, initially, right. initially. But the context behind um, the riot, perhaps, and there's lots of debate as to, as to how political it was, is that at the time, British Guiana was under a state of emergency. Um, Winston Churchill's government had shipped in a, a battalion of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders to enforce this state of emergency. And they put some of the nationalist leaders who'd been democratically elected under house arrest because they were worried about their communist tendencies. Crikey. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I think the only tour I can think of where MCC, where English cricketers were put in a more difficult political situation 
Richard, is the tour in Pakistan in 68, 69, when, you know, all the events that in what became Bangladesh were, were occurring. That's I can't right. even, you wouldn't do that now, would you? If, if, a, if a country was in a state of emergency like that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't play a cricket match there. Well, um, we've touched on this controversy. They wouldn't even send them to play four days in, um, in the hall. When there wasn't any controversy. I mean, it's None at all, yeah. yeah. Well, we better not get, we better not start that one again. Um, it was, before we leave British Guyana, uh, as it then was, mm. they've been one of the, your book is full of absolutely eye-catching facts. And one that really caught my eye was, um, you point out that um, Georgetown, uh, Guyana as it now is, is the same distance from uh, Kingston, Jamaica, as London to Moscow. I mean, it's, yes, they're I, covering an enormous distance. I was pushing it very slightly that I think Moscow <laughs> is 70 miles further away. Uh, but I think the point holds, you know, I wanted to sort of make the point that, that I think people who don't know the Caribbean well often think of it as a few islands very close together. And it is true that some of the islands are, you can actually see the other islands. Um, but particularly in the case of Jamaica, you know, Jamaica is very distant from, from Trinidad and, and, and Guyana. So I, th- I think you, one should think of the Caribbean a bit like Europe rather than, say, mm. like, like the British Isles, if you, if you were thinking about it in sort of broad geographical terms. But I mean, the, the, that sort of takes us on to the whole construct of the the West Indies as you know, as as a cricket team, you know, as, as a and indeed as a political entity. Yes, I mean, it was it was an entity, wasn't it? Really, just formed out of the the bits that happened to be ruled by the by the United Kingdom. That's right. I mean, you know, British Guyana as it was then, um, Guyana as it is now, was actually on the South American mainland. You know, mm-hmm. it was the only British possession. I mean, there's Belize in Central America, but it was the only British possession in, in um, South America. And that, that, because it was essentially a sugar, a sugar colony, it sort of became de facto part of the British West Indies, yes. David, you say they replaced the two black umpires by an Indian heritage umpire and a Chinese heritage umpire. Um, Ghana was a very, um, uh, had a mixed um, racial heritage, didn't they? Were Indians and Chinese people regarded as in some way superior in the so- social chain to um, to black ones? What would be the motive for that? Uh, as so often, it's quite a complicated topic. In, in Guyana and in Trinidad, what happened after emancipation was that the British invited people from India to, to come and work as indentured labourers to sort of replace, um, you know, for replacement labour on the sugar plantations. So Trinidad and Guyana have large Indian communities. In fact, the Indian community in Guyana was virtually majority at this time. So that did lead to some ethnic tension. But that's why, of course, Ramadan and Valentine in, in 1950 have such symbolism. They're little pals because they represent the Indian and the African communities, although um, one was from Trinidad and one was from, from Jamaica. And the Nationalist Party at that time, the PPP, led by Chedi Jagan and Forbes Burnham, was a multiracial party. So I don't want to make too much of it. But yes, I think there was tension between Indian Guyanese and African Guyanese sometimes. And also the Chinese, although less so, I think, than in some other islands, were considered to be sort of middle class and in inverted commas. So I think that change of umpires, although I don't want to overplay it because there were also regional tensions between Babis and Demerara in, in, in British Guyana at that time, I think that may have been a factor in, in the disturbance that took place. Was it the, the English tourists who insisted on the change of umpire? Yes, I mean, basically the umpiring was so bad, they felt in the what was in those days called the colony game. Uh, I, don't think they got, I think they got one LBW. 
that, that Hutton demanded a change. And there was a great big controversy about it in that he wanted uh, umpires from Barbados or Jamaica flown in. But of course, the, the, the local Guyanese authorities was a particularly sensitive matter at the time as, as the constitution had been suspended. To have umpires flown in from somewhere else was just too much for them. So they, one of the umpires, in fact, Badge Mendes, the, the umpire of Indian, Indian heritage, was the groundsman. So he, <laughs> groundsman as well. he had a double right. job during the test match because it rained quite heavily on the third day. He had to sort of deal with all those issues of covering the ground while he was umpiring the game. And so he might have, to, might have had to make a ruling on whether the ground was um, fit for play. You'd have been judging his own handiwork. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and he happened, un- unfortunately for him, he happened to be the umpire at the end where all the controversial decisions occur. So he was at square leg for the run out. And there were a couple of other controversial decisions involving Everton Weeks and Robert Cristiani, where he was the umpire as well. So I think one interpretation of events is that some people in the crowd, most people in Georgetown were of, were of African heritage, that they may have blamed the umpire for, for giving home players out. But it, it was a very complex situation. I don't think you can, you can make any firm conclusion about it. Were there any visitors? Were, were there any sort of English supporters in the way uh, a tour like this now would be packed with um, people from here? Did, were the crowds at all full of, you know, MCC's English supporters? Well, that's a good question, Roger. So, so, so it's not like now where the, the Barmy Army decamps to yeah. the Caribbean and there seem to be more um, English supporters than Caribbean supporters sometimes. Yeah, yeah very much so. But what, yeah. but what there was, of course, were people who at the time were described as local whites. And these were either British expatriates. I mean, some, uh, the Royal Navy, incidentally, and the army attended some of these games. But they were either British expatriates who worked in the civil service in the local establishment or local settlers. And of course, they at the time, we'll probably come on to this a bit later, were particularly exercised by a West Indies team largely comprised of non-white players beating England. So that they considered, you know, beating West Indies a matter of life or death. So there was definitely that, that strong tension between what I call the local establishment, the local whites supporting England. Not all of them, by the way. I mean, they weren't a homogenous group. I think some of them would have passed the notorious Tebbit test, you know, which requires mm. support of, of where you're living rather than the ancestral home. But some of them, I think, were, were strongly partisan in favour of England. So there was that tension in all of the test venues in 1953-54. Well. That's three tests full of drama already, but we've still got two to go. And, yes. Um, well, uh, Trinidad, before the test even began, there was a dramatic event there, wasn't there? Yes, well, actually, on the very day uh, of the riot in Guyana, news came through that the main stand at the Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad, which was the venue for the next test, as you, as you say, Richard, that that had been burned down in a suspected arson attack. So... <laughs> Um, it was all kicking off. And then in the tour match, um, Truman put a popular local player in hospital and enraged the local crowd by not apologising. And then in the test itself, which I, I seem to remember Dennis Compton described as an unhappy, unpleasant game, there were lots of incidents. Incensed by not being awarded a catch off the last ball before lunch on the first day, Tom Graveney hurled the ball to the floor in disgust and then marched off the field to a chorus of boos. And then later in the game, Jim Laker was cut over the eye by a nasty bouncer. And Trevor Bailey took some cinefilm of him zigzagging off the field, half unconscious, assisted by the Trinidad Armed Police. There were no concussion protocols in those days. Extraordinary. And that doesn't sound very Graveney-like behaviour. 
Yeah, people said that at the time. Peter May said it was very unlike Tom, and so did Frank Worrell. But I think Tom Graveney, while he was a very avuncular person and, of course, a classical batsman, he was capable of the odd fit of temper. You know, there are a few stories of him in county cricket making gestures to the pavilion and so on. Uh, but he certainly lost on this occasion. He would say that there'd been a catalogue of mm. umpiring decisions that went against England, but it caused a tremendous rumpus at the time. You know, it, it was an unusual gesture at that time. Admittedly, Keith Miller had done something similar when Frank Chester didn't give a run out in the Coronation Ashes. But I think it was unusual at that time for a, for a player to make such a demonstrative sure. gesture. If you come to the final test, I mean, aren't people saying, calm down? I mean, you know, is there not an attempt to, it sounds like sort of war, basically. Well, yes, George, you're right, I think. In, in, by now, um, with all the lurid headlines uh, that had been going on, both Lords and the British governor in Jamaica, the, the British governor in Jamaica was Hugh Foote, who was the brother of Michael Foote. They were in, giving instructions to both sides to cool it, to calm it down. And I think for most of the fifth test, it was a more peaceable game. There were still lots of bouncers. There was still what I think would be called a bouncer war between Truman and, and a fast bowler called Frank King. But then there was an incident of, of almost literally diplomatic proportions uh, caused by Hutton, perhaps inadvertently. He, he'd scored a magnificent double century. Um, that was actually his last great innings in Test cricket. But when the chief minister of Jamaica tried to congratulate him in the pavilion, um, he allegedly brushed him aside. Uh, and this provoked a group of armed bodyguards to invade the England dressing room. In fact, the, the player manager, Charles Palmer, was actually lifted off his feet by his lapels by one of these, um, one of these bodyguards. Extraordinary series. Amazing. Do they have special entries in the scorebook? Uh, you know, riots, you know, <laughs> crowd disturbances, umpiring disputes. Um... Well, funnily enough, I, I, the, the official scorebooks are kept at Lords, and I, I re-scored the series vertically to try and calculate the numbers of deliveries face. And there are, there is the odd moment in the scorebook, but it's, it's more recording drop catches than sort of drop thrown bottles, I would say. <laughs> well, because it's such a scholarly book and your knowledge clearly from everything you say is so sort of detailed and intimate, what first brought you to it? I mean, I mean... You, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, well, I had the idea way back in, in, you know, in about 2006, I would say. I, I was... At that time, I was writing a book about the language of cricket, co-writing with my friend John Lee as a follow-up to our football lexicon, which was published by Faber and Faber. And I was looking around for Yorkshire expressions. You know, I thought I'd like to get some Yorkshire slang in the book. So I went back to Hutton's memoirs and I was just totally gripped. I'd just forgotten what an extraordinary series it was. You know, Hutton writes a beautifully dry account of the tour in his final memoir of 50 years in cricket. And I just thought, this is extraordinary. And I thought, you know, we, we've had 20 books about Bodyline. I mean, rightly so, probably, that Bodyline is such a famous controversy. But I, I couldn't think of any books about this, this tour. And so that's what sort of planted the seed in my mind. And then I put it to one side for a few years. And then I, I sort of approached Stephen Chalk with the idea. I, I think you've had Stephen on the show a couple of times. You know, yeah. he's the, the great oral historian of the 1950s in my opinion, the moral voice of that period. And Stephen was tremendously encouraging. He's been the, the guide philosopher and friend to this book. And, uh, you know, I can't thank him enough. But it still took me so long to write, he'd retired by the time, <laughs> by the time I'd actually managed, managed to publish it. So, you know, that, that's the sort of story of how the idea developed. But I've had it on my mind for many years that it's, it's a story that needs to be told and it seems to have been forgotten. Yeah, extraordinary. And in some ways, it's more interesting than Bodyline because, you know, while Bodyline 
is a fascinating moment in terms of Australia flexing its muscles against the, the mother country. You know, we're at a point in history here where Britain is, is about to relinquish its empire, still hasn't quite decided that it will do so. You know, in 1953, people were just very happily still talking about these places as colonies, if they, if they weren't dominions. Um, so it seemed to me it was a story that should be told. Mm, certainly, amazing. Did, um, and how long did it take to research? Um, longer than my wife would have liked, I think. You know, <laughs> uh, um, I, I would say from actually really getting stuck into it. I mean, I still had a full time job then, but I, I would say seven. I would say it took me about four years to research and three years to write. Yeah. And how many trips to the West Indies did it involve? I didn't actually visit the West Indies. I I, I intended to. Unfortunately, COVID scuppered that, you know, towards the end sure. of the, the project. But I have been to the, the West Indies many times. I toured the West Indies actually with my cricket team, the Gardeners, uh, in Barbados. We, we lost every game we played, actually. <laughs> I do remember we improved. <laughs> like us in Pakistan. <laughs> Nothing changes. Yeah. I do remember we improved slightly when we managed to persuade our minibus driver to play for us. It, it turned out he was Desmond Haines' chauffeur. <laughs> and, uh, he was quite a good player. Yeah. But um, I, I did want to go to the West Indies to sort of finish off research. I've never been to, I'm pretty well travelled there as my, my brother, but um, I've never been to Trinidad or Guyana, and I would have liked to have done that. But I did manage to interview uh, some of the surviving players and some witnesses, you know, some people who were there at the riot, a chap called Robin Wishart, a very, very dignified, nice chap who, who was there, and Frank Burble Singh was another person I interviewed. So I managed to interview quite a few people. And then the Lord's Archive is very useful. I'd like to thank the staff there. It's a treasure trove of information. And um, also I'd like to thank Justin Bailey, who lent me his father's cinefilm of the tour. So that was very useful to see that. Trevor Bailey's son, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Gosh, mm. yeah, gosh. gosh. I think there are three West Indians who played, surviving, who played on that in their series. Greatest being Gary Sobers, who made his debut in it, yes. didn't he, as a, as a teenager? Um, yes, Sobers is, is, is still with us, and um, so is Sonny Ramadin. Hmm. Um, is and, he? I didn't know that. The marvellous. Yeah, and um, so is, I believe, so is Bruce Parodi, who I interviewed. He was a Guyanese batsman, very stylish batsman, who emigrated in the end to New Zealand, and he and his wife Gillian were very kind, and we had a good chat about the series. I, I believe he's still with us. I think he. I think he is. He had a second career in New Zealand as a first-class cricketer. Yeah, um, he did. Name. There's so many themes here. I mean, th this thing about the, the sort of racial element that is clearly sort of underneath everything here, or, or, or is it? I mean, is you know, we look at you know, Fire in Babylon, film like that. How far is that still part? Was that part of this tour? You know, the 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 white man on top kind of thing. Yes, I think it, I think it definitely. It definitely was, but it was extremely complex, you know, and, and you've also got the parallel. I mean, we'll probably come back to that when we talk about the ramifications of the, of the tour and what we might learn from it today. But there was that going on. I think there was a if you think about it from MCC's point of view, I think there was a tension there. You know, if you think of Pelham Warner, he was still the eminence grease of the MCC at the time. He had always encouraged multiracial cricket. You know, he'd been born in Trinidad. He'd gone to boarding school in Barbados. He actually said it would be absurd for, for black players not to play in a, in a West, black and brown players not to play in a West Indies team. So I think he deserves credit for that. And he also made 
Leary Constantine, captain of the Dominions team in the war when Lindsay Hassett was injured. So I think he did have a sense, however paternalistic and imperialistic it was, of MCC as great ambassadors, you know, for and encouragers of Commonwealth amity and so on. But on the other side of the ledger, I think there were people in MCC who wanted England to win very badly, you know, who considered the tour to be a matter of national prestige and didn't really want to see colonial subalterns beating England very often. So I think there's that tension there. And I think Hutton is caught in that tension. You know, he badly wants to win, but then he keeps being told by lords that he has to avoid, you know, negative tactics or, or, or intimidation and so on. And Hutton's, as you bring out very clearly in your book, Hutton's also a victim of the lingering English class system, isn't he? In, Absolutely. In, in cricket, in way, as a professional captain, the first professional captain. They didn't even, they flirted with replacing him, didn't they? Even after he'd just won the Ashes. Yes. Well, he, after this tour, I mean, there, were, there was a concerted attempt to get rid of him, basically. You know, there, was a, there was an attempted coup against him uh, and an attempt to install David Shepherd as captain. Shepherd had said that he was no longer available for, for test cricket because he was training for the clergy at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. But he was persuaded to come back if he could be captain. And I hope the book sheds some new light on that episode. And indeed, a very nasty campaign against Trevor Bailey. He was considered mm. to have not been a diplomat on that tour, and he was stripped of the vice captaincy. Bailey does emerge as a victim. And later on, it looks as though the establishment has got a real down on, on Trevor Bailey, even though he's... I mean, he's an amateur, isn't he? But he's not the right kind of amateur for the, um, you know, for the the establishment of cricket. He doesn't play like an amateur. He's acts as a prof- you know, he yes. acts as a, he carries on as a professional journalist. Um, uh, he has a sort of fairly nominal job, doesn't he, at, at Essex? <laughs> well, that was very common at the time, as, as yes. you know, Richard. I mean, Charles Palmer, the player manager on tour, was captain secretary at Leicestershire. It was a way of sort of keeping keeping amateurs in the, in the game. I mean, Bailey was once described as having a faint tinge of Douglas Jardine about him. I mean, he also had a faint tinge, I think, of the other great Essex amateur who played like a professional, Johnny Douglas, which is one of the reasons Warner didn't like him. Mm. But I think there were lots of reasons why Lords wanted to take him down a peg or two. And um, there's a very interesting set of correspondence in the archives about how they did that when he came back. I mean, he was lined up to be next England captain and he was removed from that role and Peter May installed in his place. Mm. And there are all sorts of reasons, I think, why they wanted to get him. There's a lovely... Your book, incidentally, has a beautiful index, which deserves a, you know, a, sort of a shout-out. But um, it's a lovely entry about Bailey, which says everything about him to me. Bailey, T.E., plays through injuries to elbow, finger, jaw, shoulder. Yes. I mean, he was an indomitable chap. You know, he, he, he took seven to 34 in the final test and then played as a makeshift opener. And he took all the strike from the fast bowler King and was hit all over the place while Hutton sort of nodded approvingly from the other end. <laughs> um, but I ended up doing the index myself. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I, I tried to put some dry jokes in there. And of course, some of it just becomes serendipitous. You know, for example, the next entry after Ealingworth Raymond is I'm all right, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, I'd like to go back to one theme you touched on briefly, um, David. You talked about the Elizabethan age and uh, Britain's lingering imperial pretensions. Um, the Elizabethan age, when they, just after the Queen's accession, 
it was a really big deal, wasn't it? There was a um, um, I can remember a magazine for young people called the Young Elizabethan. There was the uh, Eagle too, and Richard. the Eagle. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and it was all you know. It was presented a very very upbeat vision of Britain um, in the Eagle. You know, it was assumed that Dan Dare would be you know the space Dan Dare space pilot of the future. It was assumed that Britain would be leading the space race. Yeah. Um, young Elizabethan yeah. was full of kind of British heroes who yeah. you know were meant to inspire the next generation. Yes, I mean I think there is some some debate about whether it was got up by the press. I think I think David Kinnison would say that, or whether it was taken seriously. But I think New Elizabethanism was at the same time highly nostalgic and futuristic. You know, it was the spirit of Drake and Raleigh and the Battle of Britain and all of that. And, we had Richard Dimbleby talking about ships of wood and ships of steel and ships with wings and so on and so forth. But it was also penicillin and DNA and holding all the speed records. I think in 1956, Britain held the speed records on land, sea and air. So um, I have to say some of the new Elizabethan rhetoric is uncannily reminiscent of the swelling stuff about the sunlit uplands <laughs> we hear today. And when one suspects... Um, to borrow a quote from your man, Dennis Eady, Richard, that we might be shuffling along in the gutter in the opposite direction. Uh, so what happened to Truman after it? I mean, uh, Truman is a sort of funny old figure. What was your take? I mean, this sort of yeah. being quite nasty to some of the... And was that true? You know, is that what happened? Was he, was he uh, being bloody-minded? The most famous... <laughs> I think he'd be proud of being called bloody-minded. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I think he also says of that tour that he hadn't outside of playing cricket, he'd not been further than Cleethorpes. So I think one should have some sympathy for him that he was thrown into a situation that was difficult for him to adjust to because he was quite a direct person and, of course, a congenital swearer, which didn't go down well in, in uh, at the cocktail parties. Yeah. Um, so, so I have some sympathy for him. That said, I think he, he was a young cult. Uh, I think John Arlett describes him on that tour as feeling his oats. Mm. You know... Mm because he'd been sort of built up as, as the great English fast bowler, and because Hutton, of course, had a, had a great reverence for pace, mm. I think they overdid all that. And I think he became one of the press called him public target number one on that tour. So he became the focus for a lot of the sort of controversy. And of course, there was a bit of a generation gap in the circles the English players socialised in. They tended to socialise with the white people where, you know, the planters, the settler class, sent their children back to England for education. And the civil servants didn't bring their children out, out very often. So all these people in their 20s tending to use rather bad language was, was a bit of a shock to the system there. The yeah. most famous story is that Truman is alleged to have said, I think this is actually a fabrication, I don't think this happened, but he's alleged to have said to a dignitary of Indian heritage, pass the salt Gunga Din. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that actually happened. But when he came back, he was definitely the person who carried the can. He was stripped of his good conduct bonus and really? he didn't tour again for five years. In fact, he never played for England again under a professional captain. That's partly because there were no professional captains after Hutton until the distinction yeah. fell away. But I think he became the full guy. And I think he could argue with, with, with some fairness that he took the blame for other people. You know, Compton and Evans were busy, you know, having a tremendously good time on tour. And that incident in the lift I mentioned, where this the wife of an MCC member was jostled, Truman and Locke, who were accused of the, the, the misdemeanor and had to carry the can for it, they were adamant that it was Compton and Evans who did it. Oh, so there were all these sort of clashes going on within the touring party it, itself. 
Yeah. yeah. Part of that was north and south, and part of that was sort of generational. You, yeah. you, you mentioned that Truman and Johnny Wardle were accused of, of making racist comments. Um, were these accusations founded in fa- on fact, or was it more a case of you know them speaking sort of you know in their normal style and not really realizing that they uh, or, yeah. or being aware that they might have real that might have racial connotations or might just be offensive in a, to a yes a non-white person. I I think it's a treacherous subject, isn't it? Mm. Um, I think there's little doubt that one of them called the umpire you know, made a racially aggravated remark. Um, I don't know whether we're allowed to say it, but called him a black bastard. This was in the tour match when, when the umpires were black. Mm. Um, I think it can certainly be argued that, you know, there was just a, a habit among, particularly in Northern discourse, of people using that kind of language in a casual, gratuitous way. I mean, I think there's a story about Brian Sellers. The first time Brian Sellers met Tony Lewis, he, he said, now nah, then, you little Welsh bastard. So... There is an element of that. But on the other hand, I think even in 1953, it was unacceptable behaviour. Mm. You know, I, th- I, think, I think it went over a line. And certainly Guyanese people and West Indian people took great offence. Yeah. Did, did anything happen to Wardle on, after that tour? Because he got into trouble with yes, he did, afterwards. He? Yes. Well, funny enough, in his captain's report, Hutton was scathing about his effect on team spirit uh, and called his behaviour embarrassing. Johnny Wardle, of course, was a great clown on the pitch. I mean, after the riot, he went around pretending to drink from the bottles and then staggered around pretending to be drunk. Hmm. And that sort of diffused the atmosphere incredibly. He was called the Duke of Antigua hmm. because he did some clowning for the crowd in that match. And he hid the bat of the best um, Windward Islands player in, in, in Grenada under the mat, under the matting wicket. <laughs> so he was a great clown, but off the pitch, he was a very difficult character. And uh, surprisingly, though, he went to... Australia the next winter, and Jim Laker and Tony Locke didn't. I think although Hutton found him very difficult, he thought he had a big big match temperament on the field. Well, he was a superb bowler, and in different styles, because he bowled left-arm wrist yes. as well as orthodox, didn't he? The interesting thing, actually, at this particular point, although Wardle only played two tests in the West Indies, is that for the first time, MCC had agreed to covered wickets, into the wickets being covered. So that happened in, in the West Indies for the first time on this tour. And then for the first time in Australia in 54, 55. So, you know, once the wickets are covered and you can't have a, you're not going to have a glue pot where Tony Locke might whistle through them or Laker might whistle through them. I think Hutton preferred to have someone who could bowl Rispin. Mm. He then, of course, had Bob Appleyard, who was also two bowlers in one in, in Australia. That's true. Yeah, and did very well there too. Yeah. How was this reported, this sort of epic tour that you talked so brilliantly about and written so brilliantly about. How was it reported in the sort of, if you, the press, both back here in the, in the UK and in the West Indies? Yes, that's a good question, Roger. I mean, I think there are parallels with Bodyline now. I mean, before I come on to that, I think I yeah. should point out that radio was important. Uh-huh. You know, there was no live commentary back to England in those days. But E.W. Swanton did provide 50-minute close of play summaries for the light programme. So British people were getting a report on the game. And in the Caribbean, uninterrupted ball-by-ball commentary started about 20 years earlier than in England. It was one of the first things that kind of united the region. I like the story told by um, two American academics who came to work at the university in Kingston. They initially thought the number of people they saw with earpieces on campus indicated some kind of widespread hearing disability. (laughs) And then the penny dropped that everyone was listening to the cricket. (laughs) Um, 
but you're right that as with Bodyline, um, part of the problem is what I would call in the book uh, a feedback leap, you know, between the two sets of journalists. So the English press were writing their columns for home consumption, but their observations on the partisan umpiring the crowds were cabled back within 24 hours. Yeah. And so they got reprinted in the local newspapers. And these newspapers would in turn take umbrage at the patronising tone of the English, and they'd in turn requote their protests as examples yeah. of yeah. hysterical anti-British feeling. You know, so it went on and on and on. Yeah. And in fact, Swanton, you know, Swanton is often caricatured, but I think he was the exception to that rule. You know, he may have been a snob. There's that wonderful quote sometimes described to Inningworth that he was too much of a snob to be seen in the same car as his chauffeur. <laughs> um, um, but he was never a bigot, you know, apart perhaps from the, the Japanese, uh, for understandable reasons, maybe. You know, he, he, was, he, he was a great patron, if that's the right word, of West Indian cricket. And so he was a pretty balanced voice compared with some of the, the shriller English correspondents. It's a pity, you know, a lot of people I would have liked to have gone on that tour didn't go. Arlott didn't go. Jim Kilburn didn't go. John Woodcock didn't go. Alan Ross didn't go. He went on the next tour. You know, so there are, there are eight English journalists. And I would say apart from Swanton, while some of them write quite well, they tend to take a quite parochial, you know, in inverted commas, national prestige view of the series. And that, that definitely was part of the problem. Your book um, says a lot about English history at the time in the 50s, David, but I think it also says a great deal about um, West Indian history at, at the time. I've already picked out the sort of sheer size of the West Indies that it conveys and um, kind of looseness of the West Indies as a concept, but um, tell, it says a lot, or doesn't it, about conflicts between the islands, conflicts even within the islands, and it says a lot about sort of class conflicts in the West Indies as well as racial ones. So tell us a bit about them. Yes, in answer to your question, maybe um, I could start with something Tony Cage's father, Jimmy, once said, which is that unity is not the strongest feature of the West Indian character. Um, and so I, I think the strength of that literally insular rivalry is, is hard for us to understand. Now, of course, there was a north-south divide in English cricket and a New South Wales-Victoria Protestant Catholic divide in Australian cricket and you'll know more than me Richard about the rivalries within Pakistani and Indian cricket but because as I think we touched upon before the West Indies isn't a country it's more of a construct pride in your own island was very fierce you know even if figures like Stolmeyer and then of course Worrell and Clive Law fought to overcome that you know I compare the West Indies team to the British Lions in the book because of the, the big four colonies at that time but perhaps a better analogy is to imagine all the arguments there would be about selection if there was only one football team in Europe. You know, imagine all the arguments there'd be. So I think there's that kind of insular issue. There's also the, the, the Indian-African, in inverted commas, tension we talked about before. And then there is this matter of class. And I think it's a very intricate, involuted thing in the Caribbean, the interrelation of race and class. Um, you know, the great historian... He was actually a Welshman originally, but he married a Trinidadian, Gordon Lewis. He talks about a multi-layered pigmentocracy in the, in the West Indies, in the British West Indies. So you've got all this business of passing for white, you know, by marrying up or, or cramming up or, or, of course, padding up in cricket. Yeah. Uh, and Beyond a Boundary is a book about that. You know, CLR James did all three of those things. Mm. So I think it's dangerous to make generalisations. You know, that there are underprivileged red leg whites in Barbados. It's a complicated matter. 
But, you know, if I think about it, Walcott and Worrell, for example, were middle class people. They went to respectable schools, whereas Weeks and Sabres were working class people, I think it would be fair to say. But I think they were united by this sense of racial injustice. You know, I think the two factors are always in play. So it's hard to sort of make any any sort of firm conclusions about it. But it, it is actually fascinating that the sort of rainbow nature of the region, which I think some people don't quite appreciate, oh, and all the mixture of people. You have a lot of Madeira and Portuguese um, emigrated to the West Indies. Um, an extraordinary story. Some Presbyterian converted everybody in Madeira to Presbyterianism. So they were persecuted in, by the Portuguese, and they all went, you know, many of them went to the British West Indies. So, you know, Jerry Gomez, who played in the series, would be Madeira in Portuguese. Sir Errol de Santos, who was the president of the Board of Control, he was known as the, the Great White Lord, the Great Dictator. He was Madeira in Portuguese. Then you've got the Chinese, then you've got quite a few Syrian people went to the West Indies. So, you know, at the time, that terrible cliche melting pot, you know, it was a, it was a, there, there was a lot going on there. One of the most significant events, 70 years on, uh, 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 was Michael Holding's speech to camera about yes, about race and how and that has had a sort of explosive effect, probably not explosive the wrong word, but such a powerful effect on people who care about cricket and color in this country. And that's seventy years seventy years later, beyond the issues that you raise in this in your book. I mean, how big a thing is the race question? That's all I'm trying to get yes. at. Really. Well. CLR James said in Beyond a Boundary, you know, times are, times are changing, but not quickly enough. Yeah. One still gets that sense. You know, Leary Constantine in 1954, in the year of this tour we've been talking about, wrote a book called Colour Bar. And, you know, if you take away some of the period details in that book, it's almost exactly the same book as Michael Holding has just felt the need to write. Leary Constantine was chucked out of the Russell uh, Square Hotel when he was captain That's in the right, that... at Lords and with his wife and child in '43. Yes, and he won. He won five pounds damages, but that was for breach of contract, not for not for racism. You yes. know, Barbados brought in a racial discrimination act before the British. <laughs> so, while I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, I think it's a complex story. You know, of course, of course. there are lots of examples in in my book of of black and brown cricketers being the victims of prejudice. Sadly, the kinds of things you know that some of your recent interviewees have experienced, like John Holder and Lonsdale Skinner, and you know, George DeBell talking about Azim Rafiq. Mm, mm. Um, so I'm afraid in some, in some ways one thinks nothing much has changed. Yeah. There was a lot of talk, you know, by the elites in, in, in the 1950s of West Indian people being oversensitive about race. Mm. You know, and that strikes me as fairly rich. Yeah. You know, just as it's preposterous to argue that Black Lives Matter is somehow erasing our history. You know, I mean, au contraire, you know, we don't know our history well enough. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. How far did this tour, 53-54, David, how far did it contribute to, you know, the struggle against colonialism and uh, the struggle against the, the, the white elite? Was it a, a sort of, you know, was it a catalyst? Um, did it help the independence movements? Again, for some of the reasons we've discussed, um, because of the tensions between the local whites and, and the other communities and so forth, I don't think you can say it, it sort of was a major catalyst, but I think it was a little step on the path forwards, you know, as, as, as had been a little step when George Headley was appointed captain uh, in 1947-48, albeit for one test. 
And of course, we are building towards the moment when Frank Worrell becomes the first tenured captain of the West Indies. In fact, I end the book with, with Worrell's triumphs in Australia. Even though he lost the series in Australia, he triumphed in terms of the cricket he played and in 1963 in England. So I think, you know, people like the three W's in particular were energised by the by the series. We haven't really talked much about Geoffrey Stolmeyer, who's a very interesting bridging figure. He's the captain of West Indies in this series. One of the few white cricketers, I think, to be worth his place in the side. Hutton thought he was a very good captain. And he can be caricatured in some ways as a typical member of the, the sort of planter class. But on the other hand, I think he was a progressive bridging figure who had Worrell um, as his vice-captain. So I... I it's probably a long-winded answer to the question, but I think the answer is yes. But I, I think it was a it was one gradual step in a process rather than a, a sort of dramatic moment, however dramatic the the, yeah. the incidents were. Stormer comes out very well in your book, in my in my opinion, um, particularly uh, his uh, his treatment of Ramadan and reaching out to the so-called East Indian community. Yes, I think I think he could point to the fact that his family are an interesting family and that they have some rather conservative elements to them but yet they're an enlightened family at the same time his his brother was a one of one of his brothers was a sculptor who had very uh, sort of for the for the period very left-wing views i should say on the other side of the ledger you know that stolmar was a hate figure for some people in the west indies particularly when he became president of the board of control during the packer period there's a great calypso by mighty sparrow calling him a sort of cricket sir controlling the empire so he could be a divisive figure but i think he's an interesting figure and that's why i concentrated him on him in the book in terms of this shift that is happening in the 1950s just as hutton of course there's a great parallel in that hutton is symbolic of the shifts that are happening in english society i think hutton had to put up with an awful lot from lords they made him captain because they wanted to win but they then kept sort of stabbing him in the back from behind because they, they thought he was not quite, you know. David, um, uh, there's a great deal more we could talk about in your book. Um, it's a fascinating book, which um, says a lot about the present as well as the past. Let me just read out the title of the book. Who Only Cricket Know? Hutton's Men in the West Indies, 1953-54, by um, David Woodhouse again, and it's published by... Fairfield Books on the 15th of November. You can go onto the Night Watchman website, the nightwatchman.net, the shop there. Mm-hmm. And if you can't remember that, I've set up a Twitter handle, which hopefully is easier to remember, which has a link, at Cricket No. Right. Um, and I should mention Fairfield are publishing another book with a Jamesian title, Beyond the Boundaries, by Shield Berry, who I think you, you might be having on in, in, a, in a few weeks' time. We hope so. Uh, I can, yep. I can mm-hmm. heartily recommend that book. Which note, uh, I fear I must say goodbye from me, Richard Heller, and it's a still a cold and windy southeast London. Thank you very much to David, and thank you very much to um, Roger. And goodbye from me. Marvellous uh, listening to you, David. Thanks very much, gentlemen. <laughs>